Hello and welcome back to Coin Scrum Markets. Uh, I'm des- delighted to be joined today by Alessio Queglini, CEO at Hex Trust uh, out of Hong Kong, and Sean Lee, CEO at the Algorand Foundation, also based out in Hong Kong. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Us. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, you know, we're based in uh, the UK. We cover a lot of things in Europe and the US. Um, from time to time, we've uh, spoken to some people over in the APAC region. Uh, we thought it was time for an update to uh, see what's been going on over there um, and look at how institutional adoption has been growing. Um, obviously, it's been a hot topic over the last few months generally. Um, and I know you guys have been working together um, on some projects. Um, and I think you know where we're at now, we're seeing you know, the, the, the scale we're reaching that I guess uh, jurisdictional arbitrage is going to come into play. We've got kind of different regulators across the world positioning themselves. Um, which is generally positive. Um, things have slowed down in the UK. The Europeans are making progress with their micro-regulations. Things are becoming clearer in the US. Um, and But on the, on the flip side, you've maybe got some more negative um, kind of murmurings from central bankers like Janet Yellen and uh, Christine Lagarde. Um, and, you know, uh, reports last week that India have kind of flipped again and maybe looking to, to ban Bitcoin holdings. So I think this is going to be, you know, over the next uh, year or two, it's going to be interesting to see how different countries and regions position themselves to support this technology and support growth and support innovation. Uh, so it's something we're really keen to hear your perspective on today. Um, so, I mean, first thing, can we just maybe get uh, from you know, um, uh, your, your opinions on how things have uh, kind of been evolving over the last year or so? Uh, Alessio, perhaps we can start with you. Um, CEO at Hex Trust, um, a digital asset custodian and service provider. Um, what are you seeing in terms of um, demand now and how that's changed over the last year? Thanks, Paul. Um, so firstly, um, Hex, uh, Hex Trust, we, uh, we only cover institutional clients. So my answers will be only related to this kind of uh, category of client clients. Um, over the past uh, 12 months, we've seen a, an enormous increase in the demand from institutional clients. I think the demand was basically uh, spread across the, across the continent. Obviously, in our home market, Hong Kong and Singapore, we've seen um, institutional investors in corporations. We, we've seen um, banks and other financial institutions interested in entering the space in different ways. But I would say that the demand probably in the past six months has increased uh, tenfold. Uh, And I would say that probably the the main reasons behind uh, the increase in the demand in the Asian continent is uh, partially, as you were mentioning, the improved regulatory framework in some of the key regions. In Hong Kong, we can talk about it, in Singapore, Japan, Korea, but also in some countries in Southeast Asia. And at the same time, we've obviously seen the the move of um, China with the BSN, the central bank digital currency, and we've seen uh, coming more from the the West, uh, a lot of uh, monetary printing, and at the same time, large corporations starting uh, to buy uh, digital currencies. Okay, very cool. Um, and Sean, from your perspective, slightly different angle, obviously developing technology, and um, we'll come on to the details and look uh, more closely at the Algorand network itself uh, soon. 
Uh, but obviously, one of your roles is building partnerships and relationships. And again, that narrative has changed quite a bit over the last few years, especially around, again, we'll come on to it soon, but around public and private blockchains mm-hmm. and how that they're, they're being received, especially by enterprise users. Um, what, what have you seen over, over the last year or so in terms of how that narrative has changed? Yeah, I, I would echo what uh, Alexio has, uh, has expressed so far. I mean, the, the interest uh, in blockchain technology, in digital assets in general, have skyrocketed uh, around the world. But especially in places like Asia, where you have many jurisdictions, uh, many places where cross-border payments and settlements uh, services are required, uh, and using conventional kind of you know rails uh, to support that uh, has continued to be a quite a challenge. So uh, we, you you are certainly seeing a large portion of the community really starting to look at uh, blockchain-based technologies, uh, especially using uh, things like stable coins and others to facilitate some of those transactions. And you're starting to see adoption starting to grow quite a bit. Um, now at the same time, uh, you know you you are seeing also. Uh, with with the geopolitical tension in some sense uh, that are also playing out as well. Uh, And some of those are actually coincidentally also representing itself uh, in in the crypto space, um, you know, in in, in the same time. You know, Alexio mentioned uh, BSN, which is the Blockchain Services Network, uh, a a major initiative that China has been driving as part of their Bell and Road Initiative. Um, Now, you you could call that a technology framework, um, or you could call that part of their larger kind of macroeconomic toolkit uh, as part of the way for them to facilitate transaction both from a data perspective but also from a monetary perspective as well. So when when you bring all of these things together, um, I think we are certainly seeing a lot of interest um, in the Asia Pacific region uh, along with the rest of the world, but Asia is certainly growing very quickly in that regard. Uh, And that's also one of the reasons why um, late last year, we actually ran an, uh, an Algorand Accelerator uh, right here in the in the Southeast Asia region, so that we can tap into the developer network, we can tap into the startup community that are really trying to tackle these um, these issues, uh, and then also looking for partners to uh, to, con- to continue collaborating. Um, so lots of activities, as uh, Alexio mentioned, um, and I think uh, you know we can touch upon this later on from a from a perception on a public and private blockchain perspective, uh, but activity is definitely there. Yeah. And how are you finding uh, the regulators in terms of supporting businesses? Because, I mean, you know, from looking from afar again, I mean, everyone saw that Japan was very proactive in the early days, actually, and I think it continued to be so. I guess China's its own beast um, and, uh, you know, a different place to have to navigate things. Uh, but, you know, obviously with um, some of the tensions going on in Hong Kong and then maybe you know, people looking at Singapore as well, um, and they're looking to kind of, you know, uh, kind of make strides themselves. How are you finding those engagements? Are they generally looking to support the industry? Maybe I'd like so. I'll, I'll take a quick stab first, and then you can chime in as well. Sure. Um, I think the, you know, from from our perspective, uh, let, let me use the word fascinating. Right. Uh, there are so many countries with varying varying uh, degrees of both understanding and appreciation uh, in terms of this industry. Uh, and it is fascinating because they are almost monitoring each other, they're watching each other, and they're learning from each other. It is healthy, right? The fact that they're actually paying attention is a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. That means, you know, ma- mainstream adoption, I think, is, uh, is around the corner. Now, uh, does that bring more confusion uh, for, you know, for, for companies and partners that are trying to build a multinational kind of cross-border type of business? Absolutely. 
um, in some sense, you know, policies like what they have in China, where they say blockchain is priority from a government from a gov- national perspective, but absolutely no crypto assets. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not a bad thing. It's pretty clear, right? Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear where China stands. Um, at the same time, does that preclude a lot of business opportunities in such a large market? Absolutely. Uh, does that also mean opportunity for places like Hong Kong and Singapore? For us, where we have kind of that that linkage and that hub, uh, that financial hub kind of DNA in us, uh, and be able to facilitate that, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's going to it's going to play itself out. Um, but I I do appreciate uh, the fact that we are seeing more. Uh, getting more attention from institutions and also from the regulators. Uh, and I think it's a very, very, very healthy thing. Great. Alexio? Well, I mean, com- completely agree. I would just add that um, it's going to be very interesting to see how the regulators in the key international uh, capital market centers actually move. Because that's where, obviously, the capitals are. And that's where the whole, if we're only talking about the financial, the financial world, uh, that's where the main players in the traditional and in this new market uh, actually are, right? So I think we need to observe these key centers. And then I'm pretty sure that all the other regional centers will actually follow suit what these centers are doing. And we're seeing some, yeah, some discrepancies in their um, in their approach. Uh, so that, um, that concept of regulatory arbitrage that we mentioned before is going to be important, at least in the medium term. Mm-hmm. And companies uh, like ours, we have to actually make sure that we have a, always a hedge in terms of where we operate and what kind of platforms uh, we can offer uh, to our clients in, in different jurisdictions. But at the same time, uh, I think the the important thing is that we're seeing progress somewhere slower in other places a little bit faster in in all the key uh, capital market centers yeah and i guess um you know in in different niches i guess within the industry uh, things will move at different speeds you know there's been various amounts of interest around uh, security tokens and things like this and that really does come down to um you know each jurisdiction having some or more of a regulatory cohesion, I guess, because those things will work best when there's some global standards. Otherwise, you know, you've got different regulatory regimes kind of uh, clashing with with each other in that particular use case. But um, I guess you know, once once major regulators or kind of you know the the sort of the leading regulators, one or two of them start taking a lead, hopefully the rest will follow and take their guidance. So, you know, we've spoken about this institutional adoption. Everyone's aware of it. Um, one of the missing links prior to, you know, uh, recent times was, you know, I think we'd all agree maybe the market infrastructure wasn't quite up to scratch to be able to support those type of actors. Um, it was, uh, you know, the whole industry emerged from a very retail-focused uh, um, kind of angle. Uh, so, Alessio, can you just tell us a little bit more perhaps about Hex Trust? Um how your team kind of formed the project um, and um, you know, what, what it is you're building and developing. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try to be a, as, um, as quick as possible. Uh, so Hex Trust was created uh, at the beginning of 2018. Uh, it was founded by two um, ex-bankers, but with uh, slightly different uh, backgrounds. Myself, I'm an engineer, but I started my career working for the securities regulator actually in Italy. And then I moved to Asia where I worked for different investment banks, 
until I met my co-founder. Uh, co-founder Rafal, he's also an engineer, but he's been a basically a financial markets technologist for over um, probably 25 years. Um, in his last role, he was the CTO at CLSA, one of the largest uh, brokerage houses in, uh, in Asia and globally. And when we met, we had a very similar idea of how this market would, would actually evolve. So we thought that blockchain will play a significant role in the future uh, financial markets infrastructure. So we thought, okay, right now it's mainly a retail unregulated uh, market, but eventually uh, financial institutions will want to enter this space. And if and when they enter the space, they would need that kind of platforms that they use in the traditional financial markets. So the idea behind Hextrust is really to provide those services and platforms that are necessary for financial institutions to enable digital assets and offer digital asset services to their clients. It took us one and a half years to basically build the first version of our platform. Uh, we've been in the market since late, uh, since the second half of 2019. Right now we have over 70 clients in, in Asia, Europe, uh, and we have offices in Hong Kong and Singapore. Okay, great. Um, and I noticed, again, we'll come on to this, uh, as I said, in a little bit, but, um, you know, I think one of the other changes in terms of sentiment over the last few years has been this kind of, you know, everyone was talking about kind of enterprise uh, participation. It was, okay, this is all going to be on permission blockchains. They're not going to kind of touch any of this crazy public blockchain stuff. Uh, but I know that you do, you know, you're, that's an area that you're still engaged with and there is still progress being made on some of those private uh, consortium um, solutions that are out there. And we're probably seeing a merger of the two worlds. Um, is that an area that you see that you're seeing much demand on as well? And that's an area that you, you support? I mean, we believe that, I mean, blockchains, there's not going to be one blockchain that will cover all the use cases around the world, right? So there will be different blockchains with very specific use cases, right? So some use cases will require public blockchains. Other use cases will require more permission blockchains, right? So I don't really see the two worlds as, uh, as very separate. Uh, I think right now, uh, and the technology doesn't have to be necessarily very different. Right? It can be the same technology that can be applied to a public and a permission blockchain. The interesting thing is going to happen when you will be able to combine the two things and actually connect directly via some kind of blockchain bridge, the, the public blockchain to the private blockchain. Mm -hmm. right? Then we will see a seamless you know, interconnectivity between the two worlds and the, the, the different use cases. And the two things will basically converge to the same market infrastructure. Okay. Um, so moving on to you, Sean, um, talking about uh, Algorand specifically now, um, you, uh, we've, we've seen over the, since you know, Ethereum launched as the kind of first smart contracting network a few years ago now, obviously benefited from a massive first mover advantage, managed to build up a very strong developer community. Uh, but it's not been without issues. It's had its own scaling issues, which have been well documented. Uh, and we have seen a number of uh, new networks launch um, with new designs, I guess, with the, the benefit of um, having visibility of some of the mistakes that might be made with the initial design of Ethereum. 
uh, and looking to address those problems, especially around scalability and things like that. Uh, could you just give us a high-level overview of the Algorand network um, and what are the key, some of the key features are which differentiate it from some of these other networks and challenges to, to Ethereum? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, I'll, I'll do that and I'll also kind of piggyback on some of uh, what Alexia was talking about in terms of the, the bridging between the public yeah. and the private side as well. Um, so, so um, as you may know, the, the Algorand uh, project was uh, started by our founder, Sylvia McCallie, uh, who's a Turing Award winner, uh, world-renowned cryptographer out of MIT. Uh, and the project was started because he was looking really at a lot of real-world problems and trying to see whether existing blockchain technology can solve those or whether there are, there are sufficient improvements that can be done building upon top of a lot of the common principles, uh, but then the, uh, advance beyond them. Uh, and the Algorand project or the Algorand blockchain was really as a design of uh, many years of research that him and his, uh, his team have done uh, that have been actually put in practice. Um, so our blockchain was uh, actually launched on mainnet uh, in June, 2019. So you could call it a, a relatively late comer, uh, but we have certainly been developing uh, very, very quickly on top of it, both from a technology perspective and also from an adoption perspective. Uh, let me talk a little bit about the adoption first, uh, because I think, you know, however great the technology is, if there are no usage, uh, then it's not that useful, right? So from an adoption perspective, uh, you can go on our, our various different block explorers uh, and you can already see that there are over a, a million user, a million transactions on a, on a daily basis and rapidly growing, right? And a lot of these, actually almost all of them are real actual economic activities. They're supported by various, various different partner projects. Uh, some of them are in the IoT environmental space. Some of them are in the loyalty point space the micropayment space. Uh, and we're starting also to also see some micro transactions around uh, equities uh, trading as well. So a variety of different things uh, that are happening on, um, on the Algorand blockchain. Uh, and of course, with our support uh, of, the, of the various different stable coins, especially USDC and USDT now available on Algorand and also made available from various major exchanges as well. Um, a, a lot of those transactions are going to be bringing uh, a, a lot of activities and volume onto the Algorand blockchain. Now, what does that really mean? That means um, we are now starting to be recognized as one of the chains that uh, not only have the technical capability, uh, but actually have the, the room to grow, right? So when Silvio designed the system on day one, when we launched, uh, we were already able to support um, a thousand transactions a day, uh, a second uh, with finality of under five seconds. And that has been very consistent uh, throughout, the, throughout the, uh, the, the last year and a half, almost two years now. Uh, since we have launched. Now, the finality aspect is quite important because you can actually transfer from wallet to wallet, but if it's not finalized and you require multiple blocks to be written before that's, uh, that's done. Uh, in the real world transaction use case, especially when you were talking about kind of institutional grades, uh, kind of that those type of network throughputs, uh, then it becomes very difficult to do. So from day one, we've always been focused on not only the speed of producing the thought, but also more, more importantly, finalizing uh, finalizing the block. So what we're moving into now, uh, as, as we continue to evolve our technology, uh, and, and Silvio has actually recently published a, a technology update block, uh, we're now moving into 46,000 transactions per second, right? Uh, with a finality of close to two seconds. Now that's a dramatic increase. If you think about, if you do the math, uh, that's your Visa, MasterCard type of speed, right? And that's the type of volume that we're looking at. Now, does that mean we're going to have lots of use cases immediately 
being able to utilize that capability. Uh, yes, that's really where uh, the, 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 our, our partner companies, uh, Hextrust, for example, are you know, we're working on together to identify those use cases and make the toolkit available for others to continue to build on top of it. And that's what, we'll, that's what we're really focusing on here. Okay. Um, and yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and what sort of, um, I mean, that's, uh, that's an incredible amount of uh, throughput there. Um, and, and what sort of average transaction fees are you seeing uh, with that type of the current throughput and what that would look like potentially if you did scale up? Right. So, you know, it's, it's a funny thing, right? Um, we are, our, our transaction fee built into our layer one protocol is point for every transaction is 0.001 algo. So obviously that depends on the, the price of the algo and certainly the whole market has been trending up uh, the last couple of months. But that 0.001, uh, when you're transferring things like stablecoin, for example, the, the transaction fee is near minimal. Right. Uh, it, it's nearly negligible. And that's why we've got these um, exchanges that are very excited to work with us uh, mm -hmm. on onboarding USDC and USDT, uh, as well as the Canadian do you know, stablecoin dollar, the Euro, the Brazilian real, and then so on and so forth. Uh, we've got a, a pipeline of those coming on board. And if you can almost think about it, we're starting to now facilitate an environment where we can have crypto assets, uh, our crypto native asset, the algo, as well as others that may be wrapped, as well as these more stable coin type of assets, all transacting on, 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 on the network. Mm -hmm. And then we're picking, trying to make those toolkits and the facilities uh, and, and some of, the, some of the, 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 the dApps that are available to make use of that infrastructure and make use of those assets uh, and then, of course, you know, in time, we're, gonna, we're looking at the NFTs as well. So there's a number of things that are happening um, that are really powered by the, the, the genesis of uh, the capability that the platform offers. Uh, but, in, but the, you know, that, that will take time to play out. And we're kind of certainly very excited to see where things are going at the moment. Okay, great. Um, I mean, so, you know, that, that, that kind of increased throughput is critical um, as, you know, the more kind of enterprise audience enters the space and um, you know, they need additional assurances that might have been overlooked by the retail crowd and security is a major issue. Um, plus we do have all these different networks and uh, you know, with different with, you know, nuanced approaches um, as well to what they're doing and how they're addressing some of these problems. Um, Alessio, how educated are you finding uh, your kind of new client base um, is in terms of the differences with these networks um, and as they start being utilized uh, as, as hoped and you know smart contracts become much more relevant on these public networks you know there's security risks that we know around smart contracts as well maybe we'll come back to that uh, with Sean shortly so 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 you know what's your take on that uh, 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 your clients just looking to get exposure now or are they taking a deeper dive and getting a real understanding of these networks? Okay, um, this is a very complex question because I think it really varies uh, depending on the type of client that we're talking about. So if, to simplify, if we uh, divide our client base into three categories, so we have the kind of digital asset natives. So for example, exchanges, uh, brokers, uh, token projects, uh, et cetera. So obviously, this type of client, they're very aware of the, the different technologies and how to work, the, the, the risks, and all of the, uh, the characteristics of the different networks. Then we have, in the middle, um, more traditional financial institutions. And this type of client was 
quite, I would say, illiterate uh, until a few months ago. But I would say that I, I have I have seen a steep increase in the in the learning curve. And actually, if you you'd be surprised that if you talk to a traditional traditional bank right now, uh, you talk to the blockchain team, you would realize that they actually they have been uh, learning a lot, mm-hmm. and their um, the level of understanding of blockchain has increased dramatically. Yeah. Then the last category of client is more clients is more corporate clients or uh, more uh, type of family office, high net worth individuals. But for, for this type of clients, the, uh, the, the type of understanding of um, uh, blockchain is quite irrelevant because it's more about kind of uh, investment. Mm-hmm. So um, diversifying their portfolio, not, not, not providing, it's not providing a digital asset service to their own clients, but it's more their own investment. So it's basically a progressive entrance entry into this market, starting from Bitcoin, then maybe purchasing diversifying away with some Ethereum, and then looking at uh, progressively at the other blockchains, but from an investment perspective. Right. Have I answered your question? No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, back to you, Sean, on that though, because you know, um, I guess it was Ethereum's big pitch at the beginning that would have this fully expressive Turing complete smart contracts on one side. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can look, you can argue that Bitcoin has some level of smart contracting with its very kind of uh, bounded scripting language, which is kind of taking security to, to the other extreme. Um, and yeah, we, we can't deny the fact that there have been and there will continue to be smart contract hacks. And this is a, a risk in terms of building trust and confidence in using these networks at a larger scale. Um, what's Algorand's approach to this been and um, you know, how are you addressing some of these risks? Um, our, our approach is quite simple. Uh, when we design the, the layer one protocol, we try to have as much primitive um, built right into layer one as much as possible. Uh, there's the two reasons for that. One, one is uh, when things are built in layer one uh, as primitive, they're much easier to deploy, design, uh, and also to implement. Uh, the second reason is when they're easier to deploy and design, then naturally they become more, more secure, right? Because you don't have as much variances that could be uh, programmatic error, bugs, and, and, and otherwise uh, that could potentially bring more risk uh, into the smart contract itself. So, so the way we look at it is that um, you know, the, the, uh, when, when these smart contracts are basically layer one primitives, um, it makes them easier to analyze as well, right? So now that doesn't preclude the requirement from you know, proper audits from, from experts, um, but, the, but the reality is uh, if, if, the, if the security aspects uh, and the auditability aspects of these layer one smart contracts are, are easier to analyze, uh, then naturally, you know, our, our partners are certainly finding it a lot easier to build uh, and deploy a much, in a much more timely manner uh, than perhaps some of the more generation one uh, technologies that are out there, right? Uh, the other thing to keep in mind also is we are continuing to work with our various different partners to potentially layer on top of that, right? Uh, to make things even easier by providing various different toolkits, uh, SDKs and whatnot, um, a higher level language, so to speak. Right, that allows to to kind of easily write dApps on algorithms uh, and to interact directly with these layer one primitives. So that's kind of the approach that we take uh, is to take use the simplicity uh, to drive out uh, the security concerns and and any of the potential bugs that might be uh, that might be in place. 
Yeah, and I guess um, you maybe again don't want to denigrate Ethereum, but you know, again, second movers do have some level of advantage of being able to learn from some of their mistakes in terms of design. And I guess it's everyone's objective that you know these are built for mass adoption for financial services in the future. Um, and we we touched on this earlier around you know the narrative or the sentiment a few years ago was well it's going to be two separate worlds of enterprises are just going to have their permission blockchains. Um, and then you know, the crazy kids can carry on and do what they want on the on the public side. Um, with, with that in mind, when you started the projects and started the design, what were the other kind of critical features that you thought, right, if there's going to be that mass adoption for financial services and payments in general that you really need to think about that others might not have done? I know that something like atomic swaps is something that you've kind of built in as well. Right, right. So, so I think there are probably two uh, major factors uh, that that we that we built into the layer one, as well as um, I'll talk a little bit about the coaching um, plan that we have as well, kind kind of bridging between the public and the private blockchain. So, if you, if you look at um, uh, this notion of creating uh, a, an ASA, so that's an Algorand standard asset. You think about that like an ERC equivalent uh, on the Ethereum side. Uh, when we designed the, the baseline protocol, we, we make, wanted to make it make, make sure that uh, it appears that it, it's sitting on layer one and it enjoys all of the benefits and the scalability and the security of all of our layer one capability as well. Right? So all of our ASAs essentially uh, behave the exact same way as our crypto native, uh, our, our native token, the algo. So that means uh, what we talked about earlier all the stable coins that are minted as ASAs on Algorand will, will behave the exact same way as the algo. So that obviously brings a lot of advantages, uh, both from a speed and scalability perspective, but more importantly, also from a cost perspective as well that we kind of touched upon uh, earlier. So that becomes a, an interesting aspect. Uh, and, and we are seeing lots and lots of adoption uh, in, in folks that are kind of tokenizing various different assets using the ASA um, structure uh, on Algorand. So that, that's one aspect. Uh, the other aspect is the notion of atomic swap, right? So, so you, if we if we give an example, you know, if I give you, you know, ten US dollars and you give me 10, uh, 10 USDT, um, you know, who what happens first, right? Who, do I give it to you first, or do you, do you give it to me first? How do I how are we able to do that simultaneously? And not only are we doing a one to one, how do we do a many to many, one to many, many to many, right? How do we ensure we get, we're able to group all of these transactions together, and when all the conditions are met? then the execution happens and it's written on chain and everyone gets immediate. And remember our finality of under five seconds, everybody will get those transactions done under that time as well. Mm -hmm. And that's really the premise of what we built into the atomic swap uh, to allow for that, that, that capability to happen. And that opens up a lot of various different business applications uh, that, could be, uh, that could be quite applicable to it, you know, both from a payment perspective, a settlement perspective, what we talked about before, mm -hmm. uh, and also some of the DeFi use cases as well. So those are kind of the two core uh, capabilities that we built right into layer one, along with all of the other capabilities and smart contracts and whatnot um, that we're seeing a lot of partners kind of building on top as, as foundational pillars. Mm -hmm. Let me also touch a little bit upon the, the co-chain idea. So the co-chain is this notion where Algorand is a public chain. Uh, we were built as a public chain. We were built so that we have no forking whatsoever that will ever happen on the, on the Algorand blockchain. And that's why we can guarantee that finality. But there are going to be cases where we work with institutions, uh, private institutions and or governments uh, where a permissioned uh, version of the blockchain may become useful. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the notion of a co-chain uh, happens, right? The co-chains will be private permission chains that are hanging mm -hmm. off that single main public chain 
yeah. thereby serving various different use cases, but still having this network of connectivity and bridges that allow for various different assets and transactions to go from one area from, from one area to the chain to the other. Uh, that is certainly that something that we're building towards. Uh, in fact, if you think about our partnership with BSN that we mentioned before, uh, our implementation in mainland China for BSN is going to be one version of this co-chain because obviously in China, only permission chains are allowed, uh, no crypto assets are being uh, traded upon. So there are some variation that needs to be changed. So from an architecture perspective, uh, a co-chain architecture is very much what we're going to be implementing for that particular use case. But it's going to be the same thing as we continue to work with other governments on CBDC use cases, uh, as well as various different financial institutions as well. Yeah, great. So, um, I mean, you mentioned DeFi there uh, briefly, and you know, it's been a, an area of growth over the last year. I don't think anyone could have escaped that. Um, again, all very interesting, very raw still in many ways. You know, definitely room for improvement, but you know, it's, we know how these things start and then evolve. Um, but again, from the investor's standpoint, and possibly for some of your typical clients, uh, Alessio, you know, we've now seen, especially in, in, in with networks uh, such as Algorand and moving to proof of stake consensus models, um, you know, yield generation, yield bearing opportunities have uh, you know, become quite a hot topic and probably in the current economic environment, quite attractive to new institutional investors coming in. Um, you know, again, not without risks of kind of your principle could be highly volatile. So um, you, know, you have to kind of weigh that against uh, the potential rewards. But you know, again, it's, it's something which is attracting attention, uh, both on the staking side and you know, on this broader DeFi um, kind of narrative as well. So Alessio, what are you doing in terms of building your infrastructure to support these features and these opportunities for your customers? Yeah. So uh, our our objective as, at Hex Trust is to build not only a custody platform in the sense of uh, safekeeping the assets, but it's basically creating a comprehensive uh, treasury management solution, right? And when I say treasury management, it basically means to allow our clients to lend, to borrow, uh, to stake, and do other similar transactions with other intermediaries in the market. Now, what this means, the, the complication now with the, the, with the, in the blockchain world is that uh, Obviously, you don't have any more uh, just centralized intermediaries that you can interface with to do lending and borrowing. Uh, um, but you have the option to do the same thing either uh, in a centralized manner or via uh, the uh, DeFi protocols. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, you have to evaluate the, the possibility of um, leveraging a number of different DeFi protocols and evaluating them before exposing your clients to the risk of each uh, smart contract. So for us, basically, uh, we decided to structure the platform in a way that our clients basically have access to both the CeFi world and the DeFi world. So if they want to lend their funds to generate yield, they can use uh, the, the main centralized players. Mm -hmm. But if they want to generate yield by uh, lending their funds via Aave, they can do so from a custody wallet directly integrated within the, the same enterprise grade platform. Mm -hmm. uh, staking, we have already enabled, sta uh, enabled staking for a number of protocols that we support. And I think it's going to be a major kind of stream of development for us. And we actually 
we have some announcements uh, coming very soon to the market uh, with regards to how we are seeing uh, the development of staking in the treasury management platform going forward. Okay, um, very interesting. So we'll, we'll look forward to hearing uh, more about that when, when the news comes out. Um, so Sean, I mean, you know, it's been great to hear both of your perspectives, you know, covering uh, slightly different niches here. Um, how you guys uh, have, how have you guys started working together and uh, what opportunities do you see in forming such relationships? Yeah, uh, well, it's been a, it's been a, a wonderful partnership in, on, on multiple fronts. Uh, obviously, as a as a uh, recognized uh, player in the custodian space, uh, you know we were very interested in working with Hex, um, Hex Trust uh, in providing support uh, for our uh, our native token, the Algo. Uh, but more importantly, as I mentioned before, the various different ASAs, the Algorand Standard Assets that our partners are building on top as well. Um, so that's what well, that's been the primary areas of uh, integration uh, in terms of the partnership that we have between our organizations. Uh, but then, of course, uh, as um, you know, as Alexio mentioned before, uh, as the as the as HexTrust that uh, continue to offer new products and services, uh, potentially we uh, could also be one of those um, on, in collaboration as well. Uh, that's certainly something that we're in discussion with, uh, and and I I can think, I can foresee in the in the in the, in the near to medium term, uh, we're, we're going to be exploring quite a few of those uh, moving forward. Uh, I, I just like to add also, you know, aside from the from a business perspective, uh, a, a few weeks ago, we, we held a, a hackathon here with five major universities here in Hong Kong. Uh, and uh, Alexio and the Hexpress team were, was kind enough to participate uh, as part of our, our panelists um, to share uh, some of the insights that, um, that he has within the industry, uh, but also more importantly, kind of give the, the next generation uh, of blockchain developers this notion of uh, the industry in terms of growth and, and potential, uh, and also to nurture the next generation of talents as well. So, you know, we very much appreciate that, and we will continue to look forward to many, many more collaboration in that regard. Uh, aside from all of the business that partnership that we'll, we'll be uh, will be you know, focusing on. That's great. Um, and Alessio, have you got anything to say about the partnership? I think it's. I mean, the um, obviously we're very proud to be a. Uh, Partner of Algorand, um, it's you know that there are many there are many players in this in this industry, right? But I think uh, I value um, three things uh, the most about uh, Algorand and the work that they're doing. So, firstly, obviously, having a, a solid technology is key, right, to be a, a leading player in this industry. Uh, the second one is having a really clear uh, focus on which part of the market and go, going back to what I was mentioning before, there will be different blockchains for different use cases, right? And it's important to have a clear focus on which use cases your blockchain is going to solve and address. Yeah. Uh, and the third one, I think the work that they're doing is very good in terms of uh, going back to the hackathon and creating this community. Blockchain is all about creating the community, creating the adoption around a, uh, around a technology a protocol. And um, it's, it's very important to build this kind of uh, um, attention and group of people that work together from different industries and from different types of uh, backgrounds around one, one single project. And this is what makes the difference between 
projects that do not have this uh, kind of a community community perspective and projects such as Algorand. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It's, it seems to have been the most one of the most critical factors. Um, you know, goes hand in hand with uh, how good the technology is. Uh, you, you don't have people using it; it's not going very far. So it's it's you know, it's critical to any to any, uh, to any project. Uh, I'm just conscious that uh, we're nearly up on time. Um, so just before we go, um, could you both just tell us a little bit more about what's on your roadmaps over the next six to twelve months that people should be keeping an eye out for? Sean, uh, certainly. Uh, I, I guess uh, we'll, we'll talk about it in kind of three manners. Uh, one is uh, one that we already talked about, kind of, kind of the te te uh, technical upgrades that we'll be linking onto the network, uh, going to uh, you know 46,000 transactions a second, two-second finality, and, and some of the additional capabilities. So we'll we'll cover that. We covered that earlier already. Uh, the the other aspect is this notion of you know we we are a decentralized public blockchain. Uh, and part of our, our efforts is really to uh, start to, to, to really continue to improve upon that. Uh, and in, in the coming months, we're gonna be uh, announcing the, uh, the release of our governance program, uh, where we're moving, moving into this notion where uh, we want to work with our partners and our community, uh, where they show commitment into, into the network, uh, but also have a say, and have a very strong say in terms of the direction in terms of where the algorithm technology is going, where the ecosystem is going, and also financially where some of the funding uh, resources are going to be coming from as well. So we really want to take make this uh, make this an ecosystem-driven project, right? The major decisions are decided by the community. We are going to design things together. We're going to, the foundation on, on our side, we're going to be playing more of the facilitator role, but the decisions are going to be made uh, together for the benefit of the ecosystem and the direction where we're going. So, so that would be the, the second aspect. Uh, the third aspect is um, kind of piggyback on what uh, Alexia was talking about before. Uh, you know, for a public blockchain like ours, adoption is very important. Um, so we're focusing on two major areas. One is look at look within our ecosystem map, so to speak, uh, identify areas where we can continue to improve upon, where we need to find partners to proactively build things on, onto Algorand to create uh, that consortium and build a synergy between uh, various different applications. That's one area we're going towards. Um, and then at the same time, from an adoption perspective, we're gonna double down on the education aspect. So we've already got partnerships with the, the likes of UC Berkeley, UC Davis, Imperial College, uh, and working with them on um, both from an education curriculum perspective, but then also tap into the research uh, facilities and the research um, uh, faculties. And in terms of doing some co-research uh, in some of these more cryptographic areas, blockchain uh, technologies, uh, CBDCs, privacies. Uh, so we, you're going to be seeing a number of those being announced over the next couple of months on joint collaborations where we're uh, we're we're we're, we're funding our resources uh, into working with these uh, leading institutions to drive home uh, that grassroots level developer students and education level side of adoption as well. Uh, so that's what we're going to be working on uh, throughout 2021 and, and moving forward as well. That's great. Thank you. And Alessio, uh, what about you and the team? Um, so I think we have three main um, three main streams of development for the I mean 2021. So the the first one, as I was mentioning before, it's really about uh, completing this uh, treasury management solution that allows you to basically, apart from safekeeping the assets, but also generate yield, stake, etc. Um, the second one is uh, the support to um, the support for um, securities tokens. 
which I think we are uh, almost there in terms of, I mean, everybody has been waiting for security tokens for a long time, but I think uh, the regulatory frameworks are almost there, the technology is there. So we will see some kind of developments this year and we want to be very well positioned for this. And the third one, I think we were the first, uh, the first custodians to, uh, the first custodian to announce uh, the support for NFTs. It was a very timely uh, announcement. Obviously that market is going to, uh, um, apart from the, the temperature of the market right now, I think is going to actually uh, become quite large and we will invest uh, quite a bit of resources in, the, in supporting that kind of market from a uh, custody perspective. Apart from these three stim, uh, streams of development, we have uh, two big announcements in the, in the next two to four weeks. So one is uh, with respect to our fundraising. Uh, which uh, we will disclose um, uh, next week. And then we have a big uh, licensing announcement coming um, coming quite shortly. Okay, well, we, 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 we offer you uh, advanced congratulations on those when, when the uh, announcements are made. And I was gonna say, I just realized I thought we'd got through the whole uh, interview and hadn't mentioned NFT. So I'm glad that you got it in there at the end. Uh, <laughs> but uh, again, another fascinating area, early days, but yeah. uh, that's gonna be yeah, part of the, uh, the story going forward. So we, we can maybe come back and talk about that as another subject uh, in the Absolutely. future. But guys, look, really appreciate you joining us today. Fascinating to you know, hear how things are developing over in your region. Um, and we'd love to have you back uh, again soon. So hope to see you again. Thanks. Great, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Paul. Thanks.